And for the rest of us, I would invite you to turn in the book of Colossians uh, to chapter 3. Colossians is toward the end of the Bible, and we're there in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and are using one of the ones in the seats in front of you, it's going to be either page 925 or 984. Uh, we have a couple of different volumes, so that's why it's a different page number. So either 925 or 984, Colossians chapter 3. And we are looking this morning at a passage that addresses the issue of what it means to exalt Christ at home. And uh, for those of you who have not been here before, maybe infrequently, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Colossians in the time that I've been preaching. It's one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to believers in a, in a city named Colossae, hence the name Colossians. And we've been working our way through this in the times that I've been preaching. And, and this text this morning that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3 and going through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, again, addresses what it looks like to exalt Christ at home. And up to this point in the letter, uh, Paul has spoken generally to all believers about what it means to walk with Jesus, and what it means to know him and to follow him, and what it means to put off the old clothes of sin, and as new people in Christ, to put on the new clothes of his splendor. And so now he's going to get very specific about how families are to exalt Christ. So let's hear God's eternal word. I'm going to start in verse 18 and again read through chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the word of our living God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And thus says the Lord God. Let me lead us in prayer as we ask his help now. Father, you have told us in Proverbs that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And indeed, such words are sweet and beautiful, life-giving and of great worth. And you alone, Father, by your Spirit and in the Lord Jesus, have spoken such words to us. And so please help us to understand, to believe, and to obey your words be, that are before us even now in this text. Please help me to proclaim your words with clarity. And Father, please do your good work to save, to shepherd, and to bless your people for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, exalting Christ at home. Exalting Christ at home. As we come to this passage in which God directly speaks about what walking with Jesus is to look like in families, 
I think we're immediately faced with hard, painful reality. We're faced with the hard, painful reality that we live in a sinful and broken world in which family life is often far less than what God intends. For some, indeed, family life may be truly rich and delightful, which is a cause for great thanksgiving. But for others, family life may be filled with dysfunction and disappointment and devastation. Idyllic dreams of family life have perhaps uh, become crushing nightmares. Now, you may have come from such a family, or you may presently be in such a family. And the truth is that every single one of us, in big ways and small ways, directly and indirectly, uh, are impacted by what we have experienced and what we are experiencing in our families. And so, This morning, whether you are married or unmarried, uh, whether you are with children or without children, whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you had good parents or whether you had bad parents, all of us, every single one of us are impacted by family dynamics. And I want to say at the outset as we move into this passage that whatever your past and present family experience may be, God's ultimate desire for you, as it is for every human being, is to know the comfort and the hope and the joy of what it means to belong to his eternal family through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what it means to have your sins forgiven permanently and completely, and to be reconciled and adopted by God the Father through the saving work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He accomplished at the cross. And you see, the point is that God's purposes for earthly families are indeed significant and important, but earthly families are not ultimate, and they're not eternal. Only God's family that is made up of those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, only his family is ultimate and eternal. And God's will for earthly families, such as we learn here in Colossians 3, moving into chapter 4, God's will here must be understood in the context of his spiritual and eternal family in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the point of earthly families is ultimately to exalt Christ. And we've even seen and heard living examples of that this morning in these four young ladies who have given testimony of their faith in Christ, largely brought about in God's grace in the context of their families. But it's Christ alone, Christ alone, who is the hope of mankind. Now, let me just give you the big idea of our text today, and then we'll start to look at it just a little bit this morning. The big idea, the main point of everything that God is revealing through the Apostle Paul here is this. King Jesus is Lord of all, including you and your family. That's the point. King Jesus is Lord of all, including you and your family. 
Now, whether you acknowledge him as Lord of all or not, that's a related issue, but it doesn't change the fact that he is the sovereign, supreme, all-sufficient Lord of all, of everyone, including you and me and our families. Now, the reality in which all the commands are found here in Colossians 3 at the end of the chapter are to be understood and lived out in this context. And this is what we'll see this morning as we move along. What we find here in this passage in Colossians 3 is referred to as a household code, or as Martin Luther called it, a household table. And we find uh, such codes elsewhere in Paul's letters, such as in the letter to the Ephesians, chapters 5 and 6, or his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 5 and 6, also in his small letter uh, to one of his co-workers named Titus. In Titus chapter 2, we see similar codes such as this. And the Apostle Peter also includes similar teaching in his first letter, 1 Peter, chapters 2 and 3. And these household codes in the New Testament, they're very similar to Jewish and Greco-Roman literature from the first century in which uh, such codes were contained. In other words, the point I'm making is that these household codes here, they were very common in the culture of the ancient world. And they were given with the underlying assumption that order in the household would promote order and bring benefit to the larger society as a whole. And so Paul and the other New Testament writers employ this common genre of household codes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they do so with an entirely different focus that is set on exalting Christ and the hope of the gospel. And implicit to all of this for Christians and for Christian families is the intent that families are to serve the purposes of, of evangelism, to impact the world with Christ-exalting families so that others would come to know Christ by faith. Well, in this household code uh, here in chapter 3, verse 18 and following, what we find are three pairs of household relationships. First of all, Paul addresses wives and husbands in verses 18 and 19, and then he addresses children and fathers in verses 20 and 21, and then he addresses bondservants, slaves, and their masters in verse 22 through the beginning of chapter 4. Now, we're not going to get into the details of the passage today. I'm just going to sort of hover over it, if you will, and make some general observations to orient us to the things that Paul is speaking about here. And we'll come to the details in weeks to come. I will say at the outset, this matter of slaves and masters that Paul addresses, the context of that in Paul's day is somewhat different than what we know historically, more recently historically, in our own day. Uh, slavery as we have known it, not only in America but in other parts of the world, is an abomination. And there is no uh, condoning of that. But in Paul's context, as he speaks of it, it is a somewhat different framework. We'll talk about that in, days to, in weeks to come as we address these matters. Uh, but it nonetheless bears significance in terms of how Christians are to process things. 
But for now, as I said, what I want to do is make some general observations as we move into this, just to orient us to these matters. In fact, I want to let you know also that beginning next Sunday morning at our equipping hour, uh, we're going to be teaching through a series on marriage and the family. And this just happens. It really wasn't by design. It just happens to coincide. It was by God's design, I should say, uh, coincide with where I'm preaching right now and then will be for uh, in, in a few weeks to come as well. But if you're interested in probing even more deeply into these matters, we encourage you to be a part of the Equipping Hour at 9 a.m. So that's a little, little advertisement for Equipping Hour there. Uh, but that'll begin next Sunday, a, a series on marriage and the family. But for now, I just want to make some observations regarding uh, this text and its context. And I want to give you five words that I'll hang each of these observations on, okay? So the first word is this, responsibility. Responsibility. And just notice in the text that each pairing involves specific responsibilities for each person that is identified. This is pretty obvious, but there are specific responsibilities. And the point that I want to make here is that these duties that are described by Paul through the inspiration of God's Spirit, they are not vague or general, but they're very specific. And as a result, they're intended to be understood and to be lived out by each family member. And it highlights for us the fact that these responsibilities are bound up within relationships. Life and ministry in Christ is relational. And this, of course, is to play out in the family. But there is responsibility within these relationships, specific responsibility. That's the first observation. A second observation is this, and I'll give you the word roles, roles, not like roles that you eat, but roles that you embrace, R-O-L-E-S. Notice that each, in each pairing, one person is in a role of authority and the other person is in a role that is under that authority. Now, all family members, whether husbands or wives, parents, children, bond slaves, masters, all family members are equal as image bearers created by God. But there are God-designed differences for the roles that are to be filled out in the family. And this is clear in the passage. It's very much similar just by way of illustration to our physical bodies and even how scripture and even in the context of Colossians, Paul refers to uh, the church as the body of Christ. One body, there is a unity. Every single part of the body is different, but every single part is important. Our bodies are, are filled with all kinds of different roles assigned to all the different aspects of our physical bodies. The same is true in the church that every member of the body of Christ has unique gifts and ministries and, and differences, and yet it's all one body. And so that's sort of similar by way of illustration to how it is in the family. There are different roles, and these roles encompass one who is in a place of authority and, and leadership in that role, and the other person in a role that is under that authority. And we'll talk more about this in a few moments, but this is by God's design, by God's design. Now that leads to the third observation I want to make. Not only responsibility, not only roles, but third, let me give you the word order. Order. 
And notice that in each pairing, the one in authority is the same person. It's the man. He who is the husband, he who is the father, he who is the master of the home, as it were. And this is order. This indicates God's design for the functional hierarchy of order. We could call it a relational hierarchy of order in the home with the man as the head of the home. Now, please understand, this does not mean that the man is a superior person. Every single human being, male and female, is made in the image of God. We all share in that. And in Christ, those who have come to faith in Christ, every person is equal in our identity in Christ. But that doesn't take away from God's design of this relational, functional hierarchy of order in which the man has a God-given role of family leadership and authority under Christ, under Christ. And as the man is addressed in each one of these pairings, as a husband, as a father, as a master, so the man has the main responsibility for exalting Christ in the home. And we're going to see this as it comes out, as we move through this more and more. But I want to underscore this point because this God-designed relational hierarchy in a family, goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where at the beginning, we learn of God creating man and then creating woman as a helper suitable for the man. And it's important to note, this is God's design before the fall of mankind into sin, as that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And back in Genesis 1, in verse 28, God commands the man and the woman uh, to be fruitful and to multiply. And that command is often referred to as the creational or as the cultural mandate. uh, That they are to be fruitful and multiply, to go and to make babies and to raise children and to fill the earth. And we'll see that this God-designed role of every family member, which comes with God-given duties and responsibilities, all of this is within the framework of what God intended at creation. An equality of personhood, but a difference, a distinction of responsibility and roles within that. But fundamentally, this order also means, and and the responsibilities and the roles that are bound up within this God-designed order, means that all of the responsibilities that we all share in the context of what God has called men and women to, they are delegated responsibilities, they are limited responsibilities, and they are responsibilities for which we are all accountable to our Lord and Master. And so there is this divinely ordained order, a relational hierarchy that God has designed. Now that leads to my fourth observation, and it's this. Notice, oh, oh, let me give you the word. The word is lordship, okay? So we've seen responsibility, roles, order, now lordship. And the point here is to notice that the supreme and the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ is central and foundational to everything that Paul is saying here. 
absolutely central and foundational to everything that Paul is saying. In other words, King Jesus is Lord of all, including you and your family, all of us. He's the Lord. And so we see the sovereign lordship of Jesus clearly in the text, and his sovereign lordship should also be clearly seen in our families. So where do we see this? Well, we see it in the text, and I'll come to that in just a moment. But go back to Colossians chapter 2. Just slip your eyes earlier to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And this is sort of a, a broad, general command that God gives through Paul that really colors and informs everything that follows. Now listen to what Paul says, and it's emphasis on the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, therefore, chapter 2, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now again, this is a general command that frames and informs everything that is going to follow, but it all revolves around having received Christ Jesus the Lord and then walking in him following him, knowing him, enjoying him, trusting him, obeying him, and of course abounding in thanksgiving to him. And then if you go to chapter 3, look at what Paul says in verse 17, the statement immediately preceding his instructions about families. He says there in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, it's the Lord Jesus and his, his sovereign, supreme, all-sufficient authority which is governing everything. And then in the text itself, uh, chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, listen to how Christ's sovereign lordship, again, is manifestly central. With his exhortation to wives in verse 18, he says, "...as is fitting in the Lord." In verse 20, with regards to children, he says, "...this pleases the Lord." And then verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. Again in verse 24, he says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, you also have a master in heaven. Do you see how he's emphatically, repeatedly, explicitly affirming and declaring the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, which is central to absolutely everything. Now, some of you who have been here for previous uh, sermons as we've gone through Colossians know that I've frequently highlighted the fact that the whole letter really revolves around this theme, the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul is writing in this letter is about knowing him and trusting him and rejoicing in him and following him in the hope of the gospel, in the sufficiency of his work on the cross, in, in bearing the sins of all who would trust him, bearing the wrath of God so that all who would trust him could be forgiven and could also be counted righteous in his righteousness. It's in that sense that Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, has brought all of us who trust him to peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We're no longer alienated from God. We've been reconciled, forgiven. We've been brought into his family. And so it's all about the lordship of Christ, what it means to know him, what it means to, to know God through him, 
and what it means to walk with him and to honor him as the one who is good and wise and kind and faithful and the one who is in absolute, sovereign, ultimate, unchanging authority, the lordship of Christ. And that brings me to my fifth and final observation, and I'll give you the word perspective. Perspective. And the point I want to see here and observe is that to exalt Christ at home begins by serving each other all the time for those who are in Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the most fundamental beginning point because Scripture declares, and even as Paul declares here earlier in chapter 3, if you are not trusting Christ, you are under the wrath of God. His condemnation sits on you because of your sin, because of your failure to acknowledge him as the one true God and to love him with your heart and soul and mind and strength. And friend, if you've never turned from your sin to trust Christ, Scripture declares that you're still under the wrath of God, and unless you repent, you will bear his wrath for all eternity. And so that's the most fundamental beginning point. But then for all who have trusted Christ, who have come to him, it begins by understanding that we're called to serve one another all the time and to have that perspective about the relative importance and significance of families in the bigger context of what it means to love and to serve one another all of the time. And the point I want to stress here by way of observation is to see the significance of the fact that Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and following doesn't come until after everything else that Paul has said up to this point. Everything that he's been declaring through the whole letter. If we just took this passage and sort of isolated it and kind of ripped it out of its whole context, we would miss the meaning altogether. Because family is important and family is significant and the roles and the responsibilities that the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to are very vital and important. But as I've said, they are not ultimately ultimate. Family roles are vital, but they're not ultimate. What is ultimate is what God is doing in the redemption and the formation of his new eternal family through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what God is doing, as Paul says earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And it's vital for us to see the bigger picture of what God is doing as he is forming his eternal family through the redemption, through the salvation that he's accomplished in Jesus Christ and those who would trust in him. Now, most immediately in the context of chapter 3, that's why it's vital to understand that, that even in chapter 3, everything Paul says in verses 1 to 17 sets the bigger framework, the bigger orbit, if you will, for these specific commandments to family members. And what he says in verses 1 to 17 is about what it means to live a Christ-centered life, what it means to have union with Christ and to walk with Christ and to walk with his people. And then most immediately in verses 12 to 17, which is what we looked at last week for those of you that were here with us, we learn about God's eternal family and how we're to relate to one another. In other words, in verse 12 there, he talks about our corporate identity as God's people, that we are chosen, that we are holy, that we are beloved of God. 
And he also talks there in verse 12 about the corporate mentality, the corporate mindset that we're to have as God's people, that we are to have compassionate hearts and we're to have kindness and humility and meekness and patience. He's talking to all believers here. And then flowing from that identity and flowing from that mentality and our mindset and all that we're to embrace as God's people, we're to be regularly practicing our corporate ministry with one another, which he speaks of in verses 13 to 17. And just listen to what he says there, verse 13 through 17. He says that we're to be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the point that I'm stressing here is that all these different aspects for believers of our corporate identity, our corporate mentality, our corporate ministry that we're to be practicing, all of that is the bigger orbit, the bigger atmosphere that our individual family lives are to be framed in. And that all of these roles and responsibilities that God calls family members to flow from the bigger picture of how we're to be living as members of God's family. And so I want you to see that and I want to stress that. The perspective that earthly families are indeed important and significant and vital in God's design, but they're not ultimate. They flow from the fullness of what God is doing in forming, in building, in in gathering and growing his eternal family through faith in Christ. And so we're to keep what's ultimately important ever in our hearts and minds. Jesus said it this way, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, Uh, Verse 46 and following, we read that while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him this. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's affirming the the bigger, the broader, the more eternal family of God. In Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, he makes this rather shocking statement. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Now, he's speaking in hyperbole there. He doesn't mean literally hate. Uh, God does not want us to hate others. The point that he's making, though, is that our love for God and our love for, for God in Christ and following to him is to be of such a dominating character in our lives that perhaps by comparison, it might make our love for others, especially those in our own family, look like hate. 
because we give ultimate greater devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, as the rest of Scripture testifies, and even as the passage that we're looking at in Colossians testifies, if we truly love the Lord Jesus Christ and are truly seeking to know and to follow and to honor and to exalt him, we will love people like we've never loved people before, including our closest family members, because we'll love them with true, holy, godly love. None of us do it perfectly. We're all in a process of growth. But we won't love them in a selfish, worldly-oriented way. We'll love them with the love of Christ in an increasing way. And so the perspective is to, to see that God wants us to be a part of his family in Christ, to be growing with him, and to be serving one another regularly, and that that's the context in which this serving and the fulfilling of various roles and responsibilities in the home takes place. And so what matters is, do you belong to the eternal family of God through faith in Christ? That's the context of rightly understanding earthly families. Now, I stress this point, brothers and sisters, because of the fact that exalting Christ at home begins by serving each other all the time. And I stress it because when we come to a passage like Colossians chapter 3 and all of these specific commands we recognize we fail, and we don't do this perfectly. Any Christian man who is honest and humble acknowledges, I don't live this out the way I want to or the way I should. And any Christian woman who is humble and honest before God says, I don't live this out the way I should. And the same with children and on down the line. But you see, if we're thinking about what it means to be a part of the bigger family of God, and bringing that to bear and how we're walking with our fellow family members in our, in our earthly family and whatever dynamics that may play out, it orients us to everything. Because we understand, as I said at the beginning, family life can often be hard and painful. There are disappointments. There are expectations that aren't met. There are insensitivities that take place, sin that takes place, failure, and deep hurt as a result of all of that. Because we all can know and we all understand experientially, sometimes those closest to us aren't what we would want them to be. And sometimes they don't do what we might want them to do. And sometimes they do what we don't want them to do. And the reality is for every single one of us, it's exactly the way we are with God, right? We're often not what he wants us to be. We often don't do what he wants us to do, and we often do what he doesn't want us to do. As we grow in the knowledge of his immeasurable, unchanging, relentless love for us in Christ, how he is meek, how he is loving, how he is patient, how he is compassionate, how he is so kind, it orients us toward how we can more fully bear with one another and forgive one another and love one another and care for one another even amid our failures. And so friends, we're going to dive into these things more deeply in weeks to come. And I'll just let you know these next two Sundays, Lord willing, Pastor Tim is going to be preaching and then following that I'll be back preaching. I'll be here in those Sundays, but, I'll, but Tim is going to be preaching. But then it'll be a couple more weeks before we come back to Colossians. But these are the things we want to see. 
our responsibility, our roles, the order God has designed, the lordship of Christ, and the right perspective of what it means to belong to the family of God that informs how we conduct ourselves in our own families. And as I close this morning, we might just be thinking about a question of, of, you know, sometimes we use a little phrase, secret sauce. You know, what's the secret sauce that really makes this thing work? What's the secret sauce that, that, that is going to make this uh, successful? We might think about that with regard to family life, okay? We hear this, but we look at, we look at a sense of beauty and harmony and in what God's design is, yet we see the reality in our world. What's the secret sauce that helps family members to, to grow? It's simply this to be falling in love again and again and again with Jesus. That's the key. And that's Paul's, in essence, kind of the whole argument. And I don't mean falling in love in an emotional, sentimental kind of a way. I mean in terms of knowing him, trusting him, seeking him, rejoicing in him, recognizing the greatness of the salvation that God has given in him and growing in love with him again and again and again and again. If Jesus is Lord of all, including you, including me, including our families, then to know him and to delight in him is the secret sauce, if you will, that strengthens us and motivates us and focuses us in how to love other imperfect people, just as he loves us. This is why Paul would say back in Colossians chapter 2 and in verses 1 to 5, how it is he's struggling for believers. And he, he says in verse 2 there, he wants their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. To know him and to keep falling in love with him again and again and again. That's what will help us and enable us and motivate us to be faithful in the roles and responsibilities he's called us to, wherever we may be in our lives. So, beloved, keep these things in mind and encourage you to even spend time in Colossians and pray over and think through and chew on these things and seek to know Christ and to love him in light of his great love for us. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And even as I referenced earlier, like an apple of gold and earrings of fine gold is a word spoken in right circumstances. You are the one who has the words of life. You are the one who knows every individual uh, hearing your word even now. You know their joys. You know their sorrows. You know their sin. You know their hopes. You know their dreams, their desires. You know the ways they've been sinned against by others. Oh, Father, you know it all. God, may your grace be abounding to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. May they, they know the only hope that is true hope to be found in Christ, often even through tears and, and, and sorrow and grief that we experience. Father, may your grace be abounding for your glorious purposes in Christ, for the hope, for the joy, for the flourishing of each soul in you. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen.